You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. Our gift to you. If you use one of those Bibles, we'll be on page 998. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15 is where we will be this morning. Last week was our last sermon in our, in our Ephesians series, and, and this week we have a standalone sermon in Titus. And something that I love about both books is Paul's love for the church. Throughout history, these churches, these sturdy little outposts comprised of people like you and me, have been the humble means by which God continues to advance his kingdom of love, both now and, and when he comes again. Paul is so encouraged by the advancing health and vitality of the church in Ephesus that he wants the same for the churches in Crete. That's the audience whom Paul writes this letter for. And as we get into these three short chapters, we'll see Paul calls and calls these churches back to their identity in Christ and how their identity transforms their behavior as citizens of Christ's kingdom and not the world. Titus is Paul's protege and recipient of this letter, and Titus is being sent by Paul to revitalize these dying churches using instructions found in this letter that will be kind of the guide for doing this work. And Paul really serves as the earliest kind of sending agency for church revitalization. I love this. And this kind of work continues today in our part of the world. And as I prepared this sermon, I was reminded that Christians replant and revitalize dying churches for one reason, and one reason only, for God's glory. This is an important way God's kingdom advanced in the days of Titus and now. His kingdom is advancing in our day. And so let's learn more how we can be part of this kingdom advancement in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. Would you stand with me as I read God's word to us? Titus 2 says this, For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift that it is to us, your people. How in it we see that you sent your son to give up his honor, to die a shameful death for us, so that he could rescue and redeem us. And how this gospel means we can now say no to corrupt ways of life that are not with your character. Even though the grass withers and the flower fades, your word will stand forever. So as we meditate on this passage, we ask for your help. Would you open our eyes that we may behold the wondrous things found in your word? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, when I was in college, one of my mentors invited me to a Bible study and breakfast at a time I was too tired for because I was in college and I didn't know how to sleep. But during our Bible study, he asked me a question that that perked me right up. He said, Michael, 
do you know what grace is? I was a deer in the headlights. I hadn't thought about grace in a while, let alone the grace found in the Bible. I know he meant well by the question, but I didn't know how to answer. I had heard of grace before, read it somewhere, and, but it was, it was no longer in my headspace. I was concerned with enjoying my Saturday and finishing my semester and getting through my degree and finding a job. But rather than saying, I don't know, I decided to give an answer that, that was worth forgetting, to which my mentor was gracious enough to, to call me back to the simple truth I was not living out of. He told me the truth that grace is something given to us, like a gift, meaning I can't buy it, earn it, or gain it in any way. We were in Ephesians 2, by the way, which says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. The gift of grace here is salvation. Not only can we not earn our salvation, but we actually don't deserve it either. My best days as a husband, a seminary student, or citizen in this world cannot save me from my inevitable death one day. But God extends his grace to us and invites us to receive his gifts, not because he needs us, but because he wants us and we need him. And so he loves us so much that he sent his son, Jesus, as the physical embodiment of grace. When Paul speaks of the saving grace of God that has appeared in verse 11 of our passage, he's referring to Jesus and his first coming to earth that climaxed in his death and resurrection. This is the good news our church proclaims. And by virtue of our relationship with Jesus, his death was our death. His resurrection, our resurrection, and his life is our new life. And as such, we have died to sin and have been liberated from its rule in verse 14. And this is the good news this letter is proclaiming to the churches in Crete. Why? Because they have tried to move past from something they and we today don't move past from, grace. For we see in our passage God's grace is the gift that keeps on giving renewing us by the power of the Holy Spirit to become more and more like Jesus in our words, works, and ways and look less and less like the world. And the more we become like Jesus, the more we advance his kingdom in our world. By grace, we can advance the good news of Jesus where he is not yet known and remind one another of this gift that has been made known to us. But what do we do when it feels like this kingdom I've been describing, doesn't appear to be advancing? What do we do when it looks like these little outposts appear to be reverting back to their unsaved status? We call this assimilation. Assimilating to the culture around us is a problem because we look less and less like the followers of Jesus and more and more like the deities of our day. When Paul gets the report that the Cretan Christians were looking more like the pagan god Zeus than Jesus, he had something to call them back to and what we are being called back to. And that is we were saved to advance the kingdom and not assimilate with the world. We were saved to advance the kingdom, not assimilate with the world. And from our passage, we'll learn there are at least three ways we advance the kingdom of God. We advance the kingdom by pursuing training in godliness. We advance it by practicing waiting with anticipation. And we advance the kingdom by preparing others 
for this advancement. So we see in verse 12 that the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. This kind of training Paul describes is not assimilation, for that would just lead to us playing religion. Nor is it just going through the motions, though our motions do matter. What we look to and what we reach for are indicative of how we've been trained. What Paul describes here deeply transforms our hearts and minds. The Holy Spirit is rewiring our hearts to say no to sin and yes to godliness. Because the reality is we will do the things that we are trained to do. In the action thriller movie, The Bourne Identity, CIA operative Jason Bourne suffers from dissociative amnesia. Jason frequently forgets who he is, and and so when danger comes, he responds by how he has been trained. His behavior triggers him to remember his identity. In the same way, we are all being trained by someone or something. And ask yourself, is who I am being trained by helping me remember my identity in Christ or forget it? We are quick to forget that temptations are right in front of us all the time, vying for our attention to assimilate with the world. Have we been trained to resist them, go to God and respond in his ways? This is deeper than behavior modification. This is combating the very real idols, the very real spiritual forces with God's gifts that are far more precious and powerful. If we are being honest, some of us are being trained how to scroll through social media really well. Let's just be honest. We're good at scrolling. It gives us a sense of status, security, enjoyment, and control, and and so we reach for our phones when we're tired after a long work day or when we are bored or anxious. Or maybe you're a parent in the room. When you are sleep-deprived from a sleepless child trying to care for it, and your spouse who is just as tired... What training do you lean on to combat being irritable? Whether it be the things that we can be addicted to, like social media, or our present circumstances that are hard, like parenting, none of us have fully arrived at being perfectly trained in godliness. The scriptures simply call us to pursue it in everyday life. It's what God wanted for the churches in Crete and what he wants for churches today. It is essential in our discipleship that we teach people how to live. This is training in godliness. And after our service today, we will be going through some of our church's doctrine in our Headwaters class. And it's so important for churches to have solid doctrine. Our doctrine points to who God is and how he trains us to be more like him as a covenant community, as we just rehearsed earlier And I love how pastor and author Thabiti Anyabule likens sound doctrine to self-control as part of sound living for the Christian. Thabiti says, at the heart of what accords with sound doctrine is self-control. It is a fruit of the spirit that needs greater emphasis in today's culture and perhaps particularly in communities like Crete, whereas Titus 2 implies people were always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. What's the remedy for recklessness? Self-control. That's why Christians must be taught it and so that they can grow in it. And it's vital for the gospel to advance. 
So River City Church, teaching people how to live according to sound doctrine is nothing short of reconstituting, restructuring, and remodeling our lives. Assimilating to the philosophies of the world pulls apart churches, pulls apart households and marriages, and leaves the next generation untrained in the things of God. The gospel works against all of that by insisting on lives that conform to our greater hope. And it's slow, difficult work. But the gospel in a place like Crete and really everywhere else calls us to what the world calls strange or traditional views on living. Now, I do not mean to say that everything someone puts under the label of like traditional or biblical is a good thing, okay? We can misuse both words if we're not careful. A lot of abuse, oppression, and privilege hides under those words. But I do mean to stress that biblical virtues of marriage, of parenting, of work, these things ought to be full of respectable behavior and self-control that accords with sound doctrine. As such, it becomes a vital part of how we show the gospel with our lives in difficult places. And so as you journey through this life, your training will take over. Looking to God's word for comfort and not your phone, reaching for your baby's bottle to feed them rather than reaching for your spouse to wake them. These are examples of the ordinary ways God trains us in godliness to advance the kingdom by living in sacrificial devotion to him. It's not something we can do on our own strength or our own lifestyle changes. We are always going to fail at that job if we try to do it on our own because we can't maintain godliness without grace. We can't be godly without being full of grace. And so we wait upon God's grace. And as we do, we practice waiting with anticipation. So what exactly were the Cretans to wait for? What are we to wait for even today? See, the point of verse 13 is we are to wait for Jesus to return, to make all things new, to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Waiting longing, desiring. These are actions and and really affections hardwired into our souls. We long for things all the time. And so I'll ask you, what are you waiting for? Maybe you're like me, waiting for the enjoyment of football season to start so that you can assemble your fantasy football team. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Maybe you're waiting for the relief of political strife to end, even though it seems to have no end in sight. And maybe you're waiting to buy a house or, or maybe, maybe you're waiting for a promotion. Whatever it is you're waiting for, we are called to do it in light of the greatest gift we are to wait for. Only our world isn't very good at waiting for Jesus to return, is it? We want our best life now, not later. That's the cultural ethos we assimilate to. So we chase after it. Want to live as long as you can? Stick with the best health plan. Want more money? Work for it. Want everyone to like you? Post more how well your wellness is going and and how your work's going. Now, health, careers, posting about those things aren't bad in and of themselves, but when we long for them impatiently, we're prone to covet this life that will end with our deaths rather than wait on Jesus for eternal life. And if you're hearing this for the first time, I encourage to ask yourself, are you putting your hope in the right thing. When your hope goes unrealized, do you have endurance for that? The Christian's hope has endurance because Jesus has appeared. It's right for us to long for things to be made right 
for injustice to end and for peace to prevail. Part of our identity is to be people who are zealous for good works. We are to be agents of peace and justice in our neighborhoods and cities. And Jesus will use this to advance his kingdom now, but waiting upon him reminds us that the issues our world faces won't be fully resolved until he returns. Because God is the one who is ultimately going to reconcile these problems, not you or me. And it sounds illogical, but the truth of verse 13 is that waiting on God to solve these problems is what will solve these problems. I'm sure Titus needed to hear this when he looked upon the church's problems in Crete. Idolatry was so entrenched in Cretan culture that the churches were assimilating their understanding of God with the prevailing views of the Greek god Zeus. And in a nutshell, Zeus was a liar. Zeus was a womanizer, and the Cretans immortalized him for this. And they adopted his shady character and underhanded ways. So needless to say, the gospel and the church were looking pretty unattractive when this letter was written. The Cretans were giving the watching world the opportunity to insult the word of God, make accusations about the faith, and reject the good news. And isn't this what the world does to churches who assimilate to double standards today? In so many churches, belief in Jesus is totally divorced from behavior, both in private and public life. So non-Christians are, are turned off to the gospel, and rightly so. Why would people reject the Zeus of our time in favor of Jesus if there is no compelling evidence of transformation in the lives of Jesus' followers? We can for sure see why Titus was to wait upon the Lord, but to wait with what? Titus was to train these Cretans to wait with anticipation. Wouldn't it be just like God to create a movement of reclaiming spiritually dying places like he did with the struggling churches in the New Testament? And wouldn't it be like God to reclaim spiritually dying outposts in our cities and beyond? Has this not been our death-to-life story as a church? And don't we want that story for other churches? We should anticipate this kind of revival for others. One of the largest evangelical denominations in North America witnessed the closure of over 800 churches every year. And unless you think those are churches where no one lives, over 77% of those churches are in communities that actually grew in population in the previous decade. And over 80% of those communities are greater than 100,000 people. We are closing churches where we need churches. Why is this important? Because dying churches rob God of his glory. And a church does not need to die. Another way we as Christians have assimilated with our world is we are so quick to give up on things. Like the Cretans, we are so quick to give up on our relationships when commitment is hard. We are so quick to give up on our neighborhoods when crime rates rise. And we're so quick to give up on churches when the rows of chairs are empty on a Sunday. When our cities desperately need every gospel household, neighborhood, and church we have. Now, Titus' new revival would not be easy work in his day. And I hope by this point you see It's not easy in ours too. We're not going to be able to just come in and and do revival on our own strength and ability. The fact is, we can't revive anyone. It's Jesus who makes dead people into alive people, and it's Jesus who revives communities. 
And so we do this work totally waiting on the power of the gospel. And that's the best place to be. We can anticipate the work of revival being done for God's glory alone because he will come again and his glory will not be robbed by the kingdom of Zeus or any other. God's kingdom will advance. And Jesus commissions us to prepare others for this kingdom advancement. Paul is preparing Titus with this letter so that Titus can prepare the churches in Crete to advance the message of Jesus. And verse 15 summarizes this preparation well with declare these things. This includes everything we've talked about as as well as all of chapter 2. Just as Titus was discipled by Paul, so is Titus to declare, exhort, and rebuke within his disciple-making relationships in Crete. In the immediate target group, Titus was to disciple were, were the elders and the church leaders, but all groups within the faith community were to be prepared to disciple others as well. Now, I was again helped by Thabiti Anyabule's writing on ministering in what he calls a Cretan context. Here's what Thabiti says. Job number one for ministering in a Cretan ministry context is appointing qualified spiritual leadership in your local church. The issue is not that no leadership exists, There's plenty of leadership in every community, just not the kind that you would want God's people to follow. There are drug dealers with exceptional leadership skills. There are political hucksters who mimic leadership very well. There are street corner and coffee shop philosophers who shape thinking and feelings. And there are even religious pretenders who carry on about myths and seek to control entire households. So, most importantly, ministry in a Cretan context begins with leadership so that other things may follow. Correction, good deeds, gospel witness, and so on. None of that happens without leaders who model it well. The power comes from the Spirit through the Word, but the stewardship comes through godly leaders. And if you've been at River City for a little while, or even today, then you probably know we are a church led by elders, and we're served by deacons and staff all of whom are affirmed by the congregation under the final authority of Jesus. That's how we roll here, and I continue to be encouraged by the leaders of our church. And during the leadership transition in our church, it was made clear that we do not have enough elders to shepherd the church the way we would like. And rather than react hastily and and find the next available guy to, to be up here as our new elder, God called us to wait. Wait on him and his timing to provide that need. To do otherwise would be to place men in a role they may not be qualified for or called to at this time, both of which would undermine God's design for the church. And so this has been a sweet season of having guys in our church prepare by doing things like relational elder training. It's a good and and necessary time to discern our call and qualifications for eldership. And it's also good and necessary for us to pursue discipleship as we pray for one another, encourage one another, correct one another, and to do these things under the authority of what we're studying in God's word. But as I mentioned earlier, this kind of thing is not limited to elders. Discipleship is for everyone in the church. We invest in one another. But we have to acknowledge that our investment in others may not produce the results that we want. People, after all, are messy, which makes discipleship messy. And in her article, When Mentoring Gets Messy, public theologian and author Aaron Davis critiques the way Christians have assimilated their expectations of discipleship with the expectations of of how the world does discipleship. Here's what she writes. 
We often receive discipleship as a formula with predetermined results. We assume that if we spend enough time or the right kind of time with younger Christians, they will grow in godliness at an exponential rate. And if they don't, we assume the problem is with us. In Titus 2, Paul is preparing Titus for what he should do. Nowhere does Paul write what will happen when Titus does it. This applies to discipleship. We stir one another up toward righteousness and good works. We bear each other's burdens, and we do this not because we are guaranteed a specific outcome, but because God's word calls us to. Because it is God's grace that works out our messiness, and it is his grace that provides the desired outcome, not our expectations. Therefore, mentoring should be messy. And I like what Aaron says next. When it comes to discipleship, most of us want the fantasy version where time and energy are abundant, communication is easy, and sanctification is immediate. But it's because our lives are so messy, not because they are tidy, that we need these relationships. Perhaps you have spent countless hours with people who long to be discipled, or maybe you've spent time with people who hope to disciple others. But you found, what you really found is with both groups, they often want to stay in their corners because they don't know how to meet in the messy middle. We need godly discipling relationships precisely because the temptations to assimilate are so strong. The young person in your church who knows the Bible inside and out fully understands God's plan for their life and follows him perfectly, does not exist. If they did, they wouldn't need a mentor and they wouldn't need preparation. Discipleship will always look messy. It'll look like messy people pointing messy people toward our perfect savior. And there are plenty of community organizations that partner people together for mentorship, but what sets a church apart is our shared savior, who, after all, is into the work of purifying for himself a people for his own possession. When the person you have tried to prepare disappoints you, that's a gospel opportunity. You may dis- display pride, bitterness, and anger, and he or she may display sin, failure, or doubt. You both have the opportunity to confess, repent, and forgive, and choose your mutual hope. In Christ, every interaction can be infused with grace. When we extract Titus 2 from its context and and view it as the only model for discipleship, we get a simplistic approach with unrealistic expectations. We need the whole Bible to remind us that the church is the right place for sinners who make mistakes, wrestle with hard questions, and often miss the mark. When we are discouraged by the results of our discipling efforts, God's word reminds us that we are in good company. Jesus spent countless hours with his 12 closest mentees, and yet Judas betrayed him, Peter denied him, Thomas doubted him, and the the disciples were regularly confused about what he was trying to do to advance his kingdom. And the results of Jesus's preparations for kingdom advancement, at least at first, seemed really lacking. But his preparation in his disciples turned out to be an incalculable gift for the church and for the kingdom. And so River City Church, Christians young in their faith will disappoint you. So will Christians mature in their faith, and you will disappoint them too. But if your discipleship causes you to seek Jesus for his help, you have already succeeded. Your preparations are not in vain. 
your breakfast and Bible study this week is part of the kingdom advancing towards its completion. And that is what we are saved for. We are reminded of our salvation story at the communion table. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond.